It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Craig Houston Talks To. Um, we're back in the saddle again after a, a little sabbatical and a great uh, guest to start off with. Um, we've got Dave McKinnon from uh, ex-Rangers, ex-Kilmarnock, ex-Arsenal, ex-Dundee, both as a player and a, a, on the business side of football. So a fantastic guest with a great insight. And just like to sp- uh, thank the sponsors who make these shows p- possible. And this episode is sponsored by Impact Glasgow, who are a builder, a great builder that I've got some personal uh, contact with and seen their work they're creating to help our football team quite a lot as well. It's understood, so thanks very much for your continued support. And NordVPN, which we'll talk about later on. So, first of all, just thanks very much, David. Introduce yourself, tell us a bit about the folk might not know, and uh, we'll, we'll go through your story. Yeah, well, um, Craig, it's... I'm absolutely delighted to uh, be on with yourself. Uh, you know, go, you and I go back a few years, so uh, we know a lot of secrets. <laughs> but uh, I, um, I was a professional footballer for 20 years. I started at Arsenal. Uh, I had a contract and decided that I wanted to be transferred to Dundee, which was uh, probably one of the strangest decisions that uh, I think ever happened at Arsenal. Uh, but I loved Dundee and my time up there and some great people. Uh, then I was transferred to Partick Thistle. Um, Bertie Old was a manager. It worked out very, very well. And then uh, a couple injuries. I had a kidney removed, believe it or not, for tuberculosis. And um, I was then transferred to Glasgow Rangers, which uh, was a great day in my life. And also my father, my late father, uh, he was a, a Rangers uh, supporter. I had the chance to go to Everton, Howard Kendall, but my dad said, if you don't sign for Rangers, I'm never speaking to you again. So it was no Sounds like a fair bit of advice. Well, it was, and it was great. And, you know, there was difficult times there. I had some injuries again, uh, which seemed to blight my career, but I really enjoyed it. And, you know, uh, running out in front of the Rangers fans, because I was a Rangers fan myself, uh, brought up. It was just incredible. So just going back there, when you were brought up, where were you born and what did your football look like before you, you went professional? Well, I um, I was actually born in Milton, 
uh, in the house uh, in Rassie Street in Milton. Uh, and uh, my father was a, a boiler maker in Wilson, a boiler maker in Dunmarnock Del- Road. Uh, and I stayed in Orr Street in Bridgeton, uh, behind the cinema there. Uh, it was uh, a typical Glasgow single end, as they call it, you know, a room and kitchen, outside toilet. So my uh, formative years were very interesting, to say the least, you know, having to go into a toilet in the landing that was shared with three families. So um, I think, you know, coming from that, it gave you a sense of, uh, of where you're from and... Uh, I think it gave me an ambition to to become a footballer, uh, and you know, we then my dad uh, went to work in Renfrew, went to Renfrew for for a number of years, and started you know BB club football things like that, uh, and managed to get uh, a lots lots of trials with English teams, uh, and eventually chose Arsenal to go down and be a, start as an apprentice and then uh, sign professional forms. So did your boys' club football start out in Renfrew? Yeah, it was Renfrew. It was, um, it was football was very buoyant, uh, you know, there and um, particularly in the BB and things like that, you know, and uh, the Life Boys and all these kind of things that, that uh, you know, people will be saying, "What was that?" <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, it was a great upbringing. And I think um, my school team we used to be beating something like twenty nil every week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that again gave you a wee bit of an insight how you you could get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I think uh, growing up there was a great education for me, uh, and understanding exactly you know uh, what was out there and uh, you know how you could better yourself. Yeah. I take it being uh, ran through based at the time and playing for clubs around about there, you would be no stranger to the the racecourse pitches at Paisley, but near the airport. Yeah, yeah, I used to. to Play there regularly, but also the fifty pitches. Um, All along and closer to Hillington, past aye, that way. they were amazing. But they were, um, you know, they also used to play in a lot of red ash pitches. Uh, and the amount of, uh, I even in those days I did slide tackles, <laughs> uh, and it wasn't the best thing to do on the red ash pitches because your legs were just torn to ribbons. You know, aye. I was brought up and I was born in Linwood, and our local school is Fulton. Went one worse. We had a black ash pitch. All right. Um, but as you drove into the school, the away teams were coming. It was a hill that you couldn't actually see the pitch. So they would come into the changing room, and the first they would see the pitch was about three seconds before kickoff. And we used to be two or three nil up within ten minutes because these people would just be shocked and stunned. But it was a, a crazy surface, but it was very popular in the west of Scotland, and it probably just let the only advantage was probably let us play football in the winter when the grass pitches were off. But it was a horrendous surface. Do you wonder? Well, you really had to control the ball, didn't you? It gave you, I think one of the things it did was um, you know, it gave you, uh, you had to concentrate 100% because, you know, whilst uh, it was black ash and red ash, there was certain uh, elements of it that were bigger than the rest. So the ball would bounce up strangely at different angles. But I think that helped a lot of players in, the, uh, in Scotland where they played in that and, you know, they get better understanding of ball control and how to ensure that, you concentrated in your play and, and made sure that you had uh, the ball under control very quickly. Yeah, yeah I think the, the um, perversely the opposite is happening nowadays. That you've got, you know, I've got a kids' football club, and we, um, you've got some teams that they probably play ninety percent of their football training and matches on astroturf. Yeah, and then they go into the eleven aside game, and they have go up to maybe twenty five or fifty percent of their games on astroturf. Even some of your real good teams. Yeah. They, 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 
the take a bit of time to get used to it. And we've had teams in the past who just simply could not play in grass. So ah, it's a bit of a strange process, you know, it's evolved and went 180 degrees. I think obviously, you know, that was a decision made lots of years ago. I think that I think um you know, I've been at clubs, Hamilton, for example, where they'd um you know, have got a an astroturf pitch and, and, and it's kept in very, very good nick. Um and I played on it a couple of times, you know, in sort of charity games, and uh, I actually thought it was quite good. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the first, a new generation I was at was um, in Benburb, opened up their new place about yep. seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, and I walked onto the surface and it was brand new, and if you closed your eyes and just walked in a straight line, you would, it was hard pushed to, to know what surface you were on over grass, but it's come on a lot since back in the days. I remember playing for our um, regional team and being taken out to... It was a place in the East End of Glasgow. It was the first that uh, Ellenville, maybe. Ellenville. It was like playing on that table with sand flung on it. And then thinking for there, where we've went in sort of 40 years, the, the AstroTurf now, if it's a good one and it's looked after, right, it's still neat and You know, you'll get a good, uh, you'll get a good surface. Yeah. I, um, just an interesting one for uh, on AstroTurf. Uh, remember when Fernland got them in? And what they did was, it was almost like carpet tiles. Uh, they were all squares. And basically, I was the chief executive of Comarnock, and we went to play at Dunfermline, and uh, you know they were enthusing about the, the pitch and things like that. And um, Greg Shields, uh, right back, had a, a tackle, and uh, basically one of the carpet squares <laughs> came up, and a guy had to run on and put tape on it to keep it. <laughs> so it wasn't this normal that you would see where it's a sort of rolled-on type. This was actually just a more a tile. It was a tile, and. Uh, that was in the Scottish Premier League, so um, I think you know they've come on a long way since then. How long ago was that? I mean, that was probably two thousand and six, I would imagine. Aye, aye, they've come on a bit since then, thankfully. So, um, in your youth, um, you brought out a, a new book, um, which you were kind enough to, to let me have a look at um, last week. Um, I'm not a great reader. Um, I. Not a big fiction. I do like non-fiction if I'm going to read anything at all. And as soon as you sent me, I was going out and I read the first chapter pretty damn quick. So that was near a proper sitting. But I managed to destroy the book in two sittings, which is uh, tell you that will give you some indication of how much I enjoyed it. Text me and said you were you just finished at half five in the morning. Correct. So, uh, that's dedication. For guilty. <laughs> um, so I uh, a fascinating read, um, and the thing. When you when you know someone you you know uh, and you, you you think you know about their career and stuff and just reading all their stories, um, it, it was it was enjoyable. It was fascinating. It was uh, a great insight into a footballer and the back end business and in, in, in football. Um, but the um, if you don't mind talking about it, the, the early chapters when you're talking about your your childhood and stuff, you, you had some some hurdles to cross and some tough times that you faced. Are you is that something that you're yeah, talking about? Absolutely, because I think the thing is. Where this book came from, I've been asked before to write books, but the time wasn't right. And also, <laughs> I'm, I consider myself as a, quite a private person, uh, try and keep my own private business to myself. But when you get into the world of football, particularly in, as a chief executive at football clubs um, and now social media, you open yourself up to, to a lot. Um, and uh, I found that, you know, difficult. That's why I didn't want to do anything. Uh, and I just, just recently in the last month, I've had to go on Twitter and social media because my, my publisher said, "Look, do this," and that's been a bit of a a, a jump. But 
where this started from was that an accident um, a year ago. I was coming out of a business meeting and fell down 12 stairs, ruptured an artery into my brain and quite plainly was um, very lucky to survive the fall. Uh, and it almost bled out. So that that was um, a, a game changer for me. And uh, I went through months of like, you know, rehab um, because my brain had, uh, you know, uh, been shaking around that much that it reset, believe it or not. And I was getting incredible things that were happening in my life, you know, um, you know, waking up uh, during the night thinking about things, anxiety, uh, depression. Uh, and I thought, right, I need to get something to, to focus on here because, you know, every day is you know, different. You know, I was waking up with concussion, which I still get, believe it or not. Um, and um, waking up and, you know, having dreams, you know, which strangely I was uh, dreaming in Gaelic because <laughs> my father, my late father, Willie, came from the Isle of Skye, Broadford. And he used to dump me and my brother up there for six weeks during the school holidays. Uh, and my grandparents, their first language was Gaelic. So if we wanted anything, That's <laughs> to eat, we had to speak in Gaelic. So we were actually fluent in it, but uh, I hadn't spoken Gaelic for years. And so then, that was coming to me. So my brain was resetting. Um, the neurologist, a great neurologist at uh, Inverclyde Hospital, was she was absolutely magnificent. And she talked me through the whole thing and said, this is what you'll experience because your brain was resetting. So there was a lot of things that was re-educating itself. So that was a, quite a difficult time. Also, um, I had a, an open wound at the top of my head, which had been glued. Um, and that was still blood coming out. So I'd wake up in the morning, my pillow sheet's covered in, um, in blood. And then, you know, my wife was absolutely magnificent, you know, saying, look, you need to get something, you need to go up, you need to do this. And she was very motivational for me. And and then I started writing the book. So that's how it started. Uh, incredible. And see, see the, the talking Gaelic part. <laughs> how far back would you need to go before you last spoke Gaelic? Um, 50 odd years. And it just came to you like that. I mean, well, it's still in your, it's still reset somewhere in the, you know, in your brain, but you know, a trauma like I had, it suddenly uh, came to the fore. Um, and uh, it's, it's a strange, strange thing. But what I wanted to do was write a book that was different. It was about recovery, about being positive, overcoming the challenges that, that this accident had thrown up. Uh, and also using some of my experiences in football to, that I overcame a lot of challenges in my football uh, career, particularly a lot of injuries and illness. And uh, I started at the very beginning and said, right, okay, well, um, there was a, a feeling for me throughout my football career that um, when I had success, when I had a good game, when I played well, when cup finals or whatever, um, it just didn't seem enough. Uh, and uh, I, I was wondering why. I get th some therapy as well to try and get back, get my brain back into some kind of semblance of normality. And... Um, Basically, the, the woman that um, did the therapy said to me, look, let's talk about your upbringing. I told her about my mother um, was an absolutely wonderful woman. And what happened was uh, when my brother was born, um, she had postnatal depression. And in those days, bizarrely and just unbelievably, 
instead of helping them and treating them, they gave them electric shock treatment. Uh, people listen to that think, how barbaric is that? But there will be people of our vintage or my vintage that will say, oh, I remember that. And basically what it did, it knocked her, uh, uh, her life. Uh, and she used to have, um, you know, periods of being okay, when she was the nicest woman in the world. And then she had periods of um, basically not recognising you. Um, you know, I, I, there's an episode I talk about in the book when I was about eight or nine, I'm coming to home from school, go to the door, chat the door, and she opens the door after about five, ten minutes and says, yes, can I help you? I'm saying, so I try it again, she barges me out and she said, what are you doing? I says, it's David. She said, there's no David that lives at this house. Bye. Slammed the door in my face. And that was her going through the depression and the, the stuff that she had because of this electric shock treatment. So um, what I equated that to during my football career was that, um, you know, there was always you know, negative times after positive times uh, because of my experience growing up. Um, but I was able to, as I was getting on in my book, I was able to turn that into a positive because what I was, I really turned it in the head and said, well, if you're at a low point in your life, there's a positive time coming. Uh, and that worked for me. And and I then started, uh, I can remember going through a period after about maybe six, eight weeks uh, after this incident, uh, accident, uh, thinking about mortality, you know, because uh, I was told that there were 16 people trying to save my life. Uh, and I was down to not a lot of blood. So that that was really, you know, uh, quite a, a revelation for me. And I, I thought, right, okay, started thinking about players that I played with, you know, uh, brilliant people. Uh, and I thought, right, let me talk about my experience with them, like David Cooper, Tommy Burns, Ali Dawson, Colin McAdam, Brian Whitaker. Uh, you know, really wonderful people um, and great experience. So I started talking about my relationship with them and some of the stories that we, the crazy things that we did uh, as players and um, how we dealt with uh, being a professional footballer because it's no easy to be perfectly honest. Uh, and so that was me off and running. And then I thought, but right, okay, well, I've done it with players. Let me think about mortality and think about the, the managers that I... Um, worked under, uh, and a lot of them have gone, you know, like uh, Bertie Old, um, Walter Smith, talk about Walter Smith, um, Tommy Gemmel, uh, and it all worked into a story, and, and, and also every, the beginning of every chapter I spoke about my recovery, how I was feeling, what experience I was going through that particular day, and that's when the Gaelic thing came in, you know, because it was the strangest thing. I'd had, it, had it over, a, I was about four or five nights. Um, I'd wake up at three in the morning, and like, you know, it was so vivid in my head, and it was actually, I could start speaking <laughs> because I was relaying my conversations with my grandparents. Um, and it's just, it was the most surreal thing, in it, but. To be perfectly honest, my neurologist uh, said to me, that's to be expected. It's your brain resetting. Um, and that's what I did. So I, I, great, I also had a great um, uh, amount of support from a guy I know, a PR guy in uh, London called Keith Bishop. And uh, 
he'd actually fallen a premiership game in England and suffered the same as me. So he would phone me up, you know, every two or three weeks, say, right, what's happening? What's the latest? And I would tell him, and, he, and I remember he said to me once, well, he says, I've never spoken Gaelic in my life, so I don't know that. <laughs> I, I can't give you advice on that. But he would tell me about the concussion, about, you know, the, the mood swings and all that kind of thing, because it was like, it was just, it was the most surreal thing I've ever experienced in my life. But, you know, I think I'm very strong, uh, willed and strong character because you have to have that character to be a professional footballer because um, you can train, you can be physically fit, you can be a, a decent player, you listen to instructions from the manager but if you've not got a mental strength, you'll never succeed and that's, that, that's, that's the reality of the situation uh, so that's where it was. So that was the, that was why the book was laid out and you know, uh, just just evolved, and and what I was doing was like it gave me a, a reason to get out of my bed in the morning. Uh, I'd get out and then say, right, okay, let's think about you know what I can discuss now. So I discussed a lot of things that were private, personal. I opened myself up a lot, um, but I think um, I decided probably about halfway through it. There's a, there's a lot of personal things in here, but. To be honest, if it helps anyone reading it, I've actually had uh, someone I let read the book um, come to me a couple of weeks ago and say, basically, you've given me an unbelievable help. And I've said, well, how did that happen? He said, well, I read the book and um, your experience of you know, leaving Arsenal and, and you know the, the legacy of that, you had a contract and you decided to leave, uh, but you eventually... You know, put it out your mind because it really was. It was oh, you talk about letting the red, uh, the red, red balloon go. Yeah. So, so it was really just the red balloon thing is is actually it's, it's um, metaphorical red balloon that you let go up in the sky. You let you've you've carried this thing about with you, um, and you eventually let it go. And it was my wife that, that said to me, "Look, you've been carrying this Arsenal thing about you for years," and I did throughout my career, and it affected my career a lot because what happened at Arsenal was. Um, I had been told I was, you know, making my, my first team debut. I actually uh, got an injury uh, and, you know, my uh, roommate, uh, Frank Stapleton, and I were told early in the Monday, just keep yourself fit this week because there's a real chance of playing against Stoke on Saturday. Um, I get injured on the Wednesday, broke my metatarsal, uh, and uh, I had to get a cast on, a light cast on my foot and elevate it for three weeks in my digs 400 miles from home. So that was quite an experience and a challenge, but when Frank went on to play and I, I remember listening to him on the radio and thinking, oh, I could have been there, I could have done that. So I carried a lot of that about. I also um, had been uh, on loan at Dundee and they asked me to sign and, you know, uh, I said, no, I've got a contract at Arsenal. And then I went back to Arsenal and the manager says, oh, you'll be playing, you're playing 15 games for the end of the season. But I think I was season 75, 76, but um, Arsenal were going through a real transition period from the double winning side. They were trying to introduce a lot of new players and young players. Uh, and that takes a wee bit of time. Uh, and they were third bottom of the league. So there was a chance of them getting out. Getting relegated. Relegated. And I've never been relegated. So... The manager said to me, uh, 
I'm not going to play here because I need the experience to keep us in the league. And I took that as a snub. I mean, I shouldn't have. I should have said to myself, right, well, that's fine. I'll work harder and uh, prepare myself for the following season. But I had an offer to go to Dundee. You promised me first-team football. And that was the most important thing for me at that time. And I decided, whilst I had a contract at Arsenal, I decided to go and see the manager and say to him, I want you to rip that up. I'm going to Dundee. Uh, and I was very friendly with Alan Ball at the time. And he could not believe it. He actually said to me, I'll, I'll come up to the manager and I'll tell him that you got a bang in the head or something. <laughs> uh, and uh, that was it. So so I carried that along about me, but eventually let it go. And as I said, this person that spoke to me said, um, that experience for me, reading that, I had an experience of something that was, was you know, following me around from the past. I was really angry about it and it was affecting my day-to-day uh, living my relationships, and uh, I decided. Well, if David McKinnon could let a red balloon go, but you know, a big contract at Arsenal, I can let mine go, and he did it. And he said, "I feel hundred times better." So that was that was that was great because that's what the book was meant to be. Yeah. A, a kind of self help thing because if you read it, which you have, there'll be a lot of things in that resonate, and you think, well. I can do that, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's admirable the, the level of um, detail you went into in the book with, with some of your you know things that were very, as you said yourself, very very private to you. And I think sometimes when you get to that point where you're doing a book, I'm, I'm fortunate that somebody I'm doing as the author of it, I couldn't write a book. Somebody came and wrote about my story, and I found, and I think you spoke about it towards the end of the book. That process helps, yeah, personally. But because you're you're opening yourself to the world, you will always find somebody that, that you know attaches herself to your story with similarities in her own life. And I think once the book goes out, uh, when it's once it's launched and, it, and it's read at a wider audience, that will be something that you'll just continue to get for for a few years from uh, from now. But no, it was it was a very open um, story. Sometimes you read these books, and what I liked about it and what I liked about talking to you is. You're not a normal footballer, you're abnormal, but a normal footballer, when they talk, when they write their book, it's just about the stories. And this happened in a changing room, and this happened when we won this game, and this happened when we lost this game, and this manager. And you don't really learn anything about them. You just learn about the character that you already know that you see in the TV um, throughout their career. So when I read yours and similar books, um, I always enjoy them more because it's, 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 it's learning about... David McKinnon, no learning about David McKinnon in brackets footballer. Um, and because your story was not just about being a player, you go on to talk about your time in the boardroom, you go on to talk about your time, obviously, with the accident, you go on to talk about the, the health things that you discovered after that, and the stuff that you spoke about, your, your youth, about your mother, very, very personal and private, but um, to read it, it was, it was very um, an eye-opener. Um, to just take a, a step back... Hi guys, I'd just like to take a, a minute to talk to you about NordVPN, which is a company that I use their services. I use it majority of the time when I'm traveling abroad and I want to uh, keep up to date with the programs I'm watching at the time or more importantly to me, um, the sports that I want to watch when I'm abroad. So it doesn't matter where I am in the world, I can still watch the channels and the games and the sports that I want to. It also gives me security and some privacy that I'm looking for when I'm browsing the internet. They've got an exclusive huge discount available to uh, viewers of the podcast. 
and they'll give you an additional four months free and top of whichever package you go on if you use our, our code. To get that, plus a 30-day, no quibble, uh, money-back guarantee, all you need to do is log on to nordvpn.com backslash Craig, C-R-A-I-G, and that'll get you the exclusive discount plus the four months free on top of whichever package you go for. So go and give them a look, guys, and certainly I've had no problem using them in the times I'm travelling abroad when I mostly use them. Thank you very much. You're a kid in Renfrew at the time, I take it, when you signed for Arsenal? Yes. How does that happen? How does this kid that's that's playing, you know, under-15, under-16 football in, in Renfrew and in the Paisley area suddenly end up at uh, such a great institution as Arsenal? Well, I um, I played with a really good uh, team for um, youths, Glasgow United, um, and a lot of good players uh, played with them, um, and we had a really good team, and uh, scouts used to come to every game uh, and you know, watch the games, because, you know, I know that uh, <laughs> it's very topical just now about doing everything on the computer, looking at footage of, of players and saying, oh, he looks good. But unless you go and see someone, you don't get a feel for their ability, but also you don't get a feel for if they make a bad pass or they, um, they're not playing so well. How do, they, how do they cope with that? Because you're not going to play well every week. So it's about that. that you get a full story if you go and see someone. So scouts then, there was a huge amount of scouts uh, from English teams going to games like Glasgow United, Easter Craigs, things like that, uh, and they would pluck players out. And um, I actually went to uh, quite a few teams on trial: um, Chelsea, Ipswich, uh, Sheffield United, um, Arsenal, obviously, and uh, had a few offers. Um, I actually. Uh, well, I think my, my, my dad kind of gave me a bit of advice. He said, well, Arsenal, you know, they just won the double and things like that. You know, they're a great team. And they'd, they'd a reputation for bringing young players through. Um, my own, where I felt comfortable was, was at Ipswich, believe it or not. Bobby Robson was the manager. And um, he uh, was a great person. Uh, and I remember playing a, a trial game and he, you know, he was very personable came to me and he said, you've got a real chance. He said, a real chance. He said, and I'd like to sign you. I thought, well, that's the manager, Bobby Robson, saying you that. And Ipswich are a wonderful team at that that stage. Um, you know, but I signed for Arsenal and that was it. And I got on. But there was a lot of, the, the youth team at that side, at that time was full of unbelievable players. You know, Frank Stapleton, Liam Brady, David Price, David O'Leary, um, John Devine. Will Frostron, John Matthews, you know, all these guys went on to play at a decent level. Uh, and there was a lot of competition, you know. Uh, I was the only Scottish guy down there, and that was that was difficult. That's unusual at that time, though. I mean, most people, with their introduction into football was similar to yours, where the youth players went down south, youth players, and then finished their career. Most of them were at that time, um, there would have been at least two or three other Scots in the team, but you at Arsenal being the only Scot, that must have been, one, difficult, and two, quite unusual for teams down south at the time. Well, it was. Um, there was a couple of guys went down in trial with me, uh, but they weren't signed. Um, 
So I was the only Scottish guy, and as I say, um, it was very difficult at times. There was a uh, there was a Scottish coach, uh, Ian Crawford, who played with Hearts in the cup final when they won a cup final, I think, in the early sixties. Um, there was a guy, Dave Smith, who was the reserve team uh, coach, who went on to uh, be the manager of Dundee. Frank McClintock was a club captain, wonderful man. Peter Marinello was there. Uh, Eddie Kelly. Uh, and they kind of you know, looked after me. And also, strangely, uh, to probably to a lot of Scottish um, sort of uh, fans, but Alan Ball really, I think it's probably because we were gingers, you know. Uh, but he, from day one, you know, liked something about me and gave me some unbelievable assistance in that journey to come through, you know, at Arsenal. So him and Pat Rice were absolutely magnificent to me. That would be, did you go down there when you were about 16? 16, and you yeah. were there till about 20? 20, yeah. yeah. So. Um, incredible. There's something I wasn't aware of, to be honest with you, David, that your career had started uh, down south. I knew, obviously, when you came to Rangers, you came for this one, and then later on in life, I'd seen things that you'd at Dundee and obviously knew you went to come along and stuff after that. Um, but I was unaware of that for a, a while. Um, incredible start of football. And you, when you went to Dundee, was, was it Bertie Ald that signed you? No, sorry, Bertie Ald, Tony sorry. Gemmell that signed uh, you? No, it was actually ex-Rangers manager, Davy White, who signed me. Uh, and I had the strangest introduction because I was supposed to play Dundee were in the Premier League and uh, they were playing Celtic at uh, Dens Park. Uh, I think I signed something on the, the Monday of the, the previous week. And um, David White said to me, right, you're making your debut, first team debut against Celtic. And I thought, well, you're beauty. <laughs> uh, and they players like Dalglish and all that kind of thing at that time. But um, he said to me, he says, look, he said, you've not played for a week or two. He said, so I want you to play in the reserve fixture at, at Parkhead. And I said, I know, boy. <laughs> and uh, somebody tackled me and uh, flaked a, a bone off my ankle and was out for, I think I was out for 14 months. Seriously? So you've signed for Dundee? Dundee. And, and you don't play for over a year aye. before you get to and be fit enough time, to play your first team? Davy White's gone, Tommy Gemmell's in, uh, and that was it. So, And also, to compound things, you know, when I left um, Arsenal, Bertie Mee, the manager, said to me, Davy says, you're making a big mistake. He said, you will play. I'm, I've got a plan to bring in players into this first team. He said over the next season, and you're one of them. You'll be you'll be playing here, and you'll become a regular. And, uh, but I didn't listen, which was strange. But as I'm going through this rehab of you know, I had two operations in my ankle, and was told my career was was over at one stage, um, and I'm looking looking at match of the day, and you know. Frank Staple, Liam Brady, all these players are, are you know, excelling in, in the, the Arsenal first team. And I thought, crikey. And even Pat Rice, because, you know, I was I was the understudy of Pat Rice, who actually helped me incredibly. And uh, Pat was transferred to Watford. So that was my place, you know, but John, they put John Devine in. Uh, and, you know, he was basically my understudy, if you know what I mean. There was a... There was a, a yeah, so I wasn't there. So he jumped into the first team and did very well. So took the opportunity. So that in that rehab, that was a real dark place for me to to cope with that. Cope with uh, being told my, my career could be over. Um, still to make my debut 
for Dundee because of injury, uh, and then looking from afar where you know, players are making their debut, and Bertie Me was right in what he told me. Uh, so that that took a lot of um, uh, inner strength to to overcome. Uh, but as I said to you, I've always had inner strength, and uh, I overcame a lot of challenges to get to to where I wanted to go in football, and uh, that was just another thing. And and going back to my injury and the hard things that were discovered from that, um, that's. If I've overcome what I've overcome to become a professional footballer, then that's the rest is dead easy. <laughs> so. oh, that's, a, that's a good positive outlook to be fair to you. So um, I didn't appreciate that when I read the book. I think thinking back, it was there. I've just now put the put all the dots together. So you're you're 20 years of age. The incredible decision to leave Arsenal and bang right away. Almost you're, you've got this 14 months where you're not playing at football. I don't think it's any surprise you this red bone for a while, Davey. Because <laughs> I think even without the injury, it's a sort of move that you would always think, oh, they've done the right thing. And um, But when you when you put the injury on top of that, and the fact that you, you had to play and you're, you're learning well, you might not play again. I don't think it's any surprise at all that you thought at some points, is that doing the right thing? It's not working for me. That's, that's what... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I thought at the time, uh, and, you know, um, but as I said to you, you know, you, as a footballer, you need that inner strength. You need that determination because it's not always a bed of roses, you know. Uh, but also, you know, in writing my book, I believe different was for a reason. Uh, and I actually come to a lot of conclusions about things that happened to me during during my career. Uh, the Arsenal won. Um, strangely <laughs> decided that that was for a reason going to Dundee because um, Tommy Gemmell was there. Uh, and Tommy Gemmel, I remember saying to Tommy Gemmel, you know, what a penalty kick taker he was. He, was, he took penalty kicks and basically hammered the ball all over the goals, always scored with him. Uh, and one of the things as a young player, you want to know the secrets. What's the secret? So I remember saying to Tommy Gemmel, what's your secret about your penalty? And he said to me, Dave, he says, I've got uh, no secret. He says, what I do is I go up, I put the ball in the spot and I run up get my head over the ball and hit it as hard as I can. He says, and if I don't know where it's going, the goalkeepers get absolutely no chance. Right. And the Ted McMahon of the same philosophy about football in general, because <laughs> that was the sort of thing he would do. And you played with him, didn't you? And you uh, talk about it in a book. But he does, character he was. Uh, 
But uh, so, so 14 years later, I'm, I'm the captain of Kilmarnock. Uh, we've come from being the second worst team in Scotland to uh, a final day when, if we win, we get promoted. And uh, it's one each, big crowd at Rugby Park, one each uh, against Cowdenbeath, going into the last 10 minutes. We get a penalty with eight minutes to go. I'm the captain. No one else wants to take it. So I grab the ball and, you know, in my life, I'm walking up. Tommy Burns uh, said to me, Davey said, you need to score with us because if you don't score, the club's going nowhere. Right? And I said, oh, no pressure, Tommy, and then he crossed himself. Uh, and I said, cheers. And uh, So I'm walking up and I hear all the players are going, come on, you need to score, you need to score. You know, and I thought, right, okay. Well, I, I realised the enormity of what I was about to do. And then Tommy Gemmell's voice came into my head as I'm walking up, put the ball on the spot, get your head over it, hit it as hard as you can. And if you don't know where it's going, the goalkeeper's got no chance. And that's what I did. And I scored. And Kamalik get promoted. So um, as I was writing that, strangely, <laughs> my brain decided, that's why you left Arsenal. Because you'd never, never, never had that experience. So, uh, that's incredible. And that was something that I took out of the book. Um, I think it's normal now. Um, most people in life will have some issues with mental health. And I've certainly had mine in the past. But the one thing that I'll take out of your book was that total reversal of good times are always going to have a bad time. Well, if that's the way life goes when you're here, there's always got to be one of them. Yep. Um, and it's, it's it's not a bad life lesson, so I'm going to thank you for that one, David. That was pretty good. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, I, I think the thing is, that's I, I never set out to to make it, you know, here's a lesson. And all that. It was just simply that when, you know, I, I never planned what I was writing. It just came every day about how I was going to uh, get things down in, in paper. And... Uh, when I started to look back at it and say, right, well, here's here's a lesson, you know, everything happens for a reason. There's someone looking after you. Uh, and, um, you know, good times will follow bad times. Uh, and also have a, a wee bit of belief in yourself because I think the thing is, like, you know, I certainly, and maybe it's a, a Scottish thing, you know, even when I was playing at the top of my career and playing well, uh, I never quite really believed in myself um and i think that's a lot of thing that's that's a lot of scottish things where you you, you know you were maybe taught not to uh you know be bigger than we are and think that but certainly um it was a big lesson for me and also i think um realizing how lucky i've been actually falling down those stairs because uh, if i fo- hadn't fallen down those stairs I'd never discovered some of the, the other health issues that I've had. Um, so I'm taking everything as a positive. Yeah. Um, I've still got a lot of things to achieve in life. Um, and I've got a lot of quests, particularly with this heart issue, with ex-footballers. Uh, we need to do something about that. Um, so, so you know, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real positive for me. So, No, and I think, again, something that you said about the, the, the just the process of writing the book, as a positive for you, I, I felt similar when, when uh, the guy was writing about mine, just making you think backwards and, and projecting things forward. It was it was good. It was a great read. So you're at Dundee. Many years did you do there? Um, two years. I was two years there. And then that's when the Thistle 
Yeah, um, I was. I was. As I say, I didn't play for about fourteen months, and then Tommy Gemmo had become the manager, and Tommy introduced me to the first team. Um, he, you know, he was a cavalier type of player, and he basically said to me, "I want you to do the same." So I was like playing right back, and I was like uh, playing right uh, wing back as well, and um, you know my driving enthusiasm that because I'd, I'd missed so many games I wanted to play every game as if it was my last and uh, that attitude gets you through games uh, and very quickly Tommy said to me look there's a lot of teams looking at you he said uh, won't stand in your way um, there was a, a few to get back to England and things like that but um, eventually um, Partick Thistle came in and uh, I met Bertie Old and Tommy Gemmell at uh, the Salutation Hotel in Perth. And there's a great photograph of Bertie Old on one side and Tommy Gemmell on the other, and me in the middle. <laughs> uh, so that gave me a lift. But Thistle was just, uh, it was an outrageous club. Absolutely. It was, it, was, it was a brilliant dressing room, but, you know, talking about surviving and that, you know, you really had to, if you're wits about you, some of the things that happened there were just surreal. Unbelievable things that happened in that dressing room. And Bertie, about your character, um, I had the fortune of working for his son, Robert, ah. in the motorcade, uh, about 99, 2000. Ah. And uh, the garage we worked in was out in East Cobride, and Bertie was living in Straven at the time. Yeah. So he'd been in the garage maybe three or four times a week during the week. And ah. I was one of the few salesmen that were working in the place at the time that was into football. So although we were obviously different uh, ends of the spectrum, she sat and bled her away and I got a, I got a tannoy out one day. Great question at the manager's office and I thought, done. And uh, I walked in and there was two directors uh -huh. and Robert, who was the general manager, uh -huh. and I didn't actually realise Bertie was in the corner. Uh -huh. And uh, I'm thinking, I don't know, this is, this is a bit serious, isn't it? And uh, Robert got walked around his desk and he says, right, again, put your hand out, shut your eyes. I says, Robert, we're not at school here. Am I getting a bell? What, what's going on? He says, no, no, it's not bad. Just put your hand out and shut your eyes, which I did. And uh, he placed something in my hand and shut my hand. And he says, you see, before you open your hand, just to let you know, you'd be the last orange bee ever to get on in one of them. And it opened up and it was Bertie's uh, Lisbon medal. Oh, was it? Aye. Uh, a lovely man. He used uh, to wear it around his neck. But it was like the strangest thing because I, I'd signed... And Bertie never told me that they were part-time, <laughs> to be honest. And um, But, you know, I tripled my wages. Uh, so you went from Dundee, which were full-time? Yep. To party part-time and three times a wage? Yep. And uh, I then got a job as well. So I was... I was You're full of now. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I remember I came in, we were playing Dundee United at Firhill on the Saturday and... Um, the you know notice board to put the team up, uh, and so I'm playing. Right? So I'm thinking, great, make my debut against Dundee United, which was uh, interesting to say the least. And uh, you know, basically um, arrive at uh, Firhill at uh, 10 a.m. I'm thinking to myself, 10 a.m. The game's it's a three o'clock kickoff. So I said to Big Ruffy, I says, what's this about 10 a.m.? He said, oh, you'll see. Uh, so I got there 10 a.m. And basically, well, the reserve team's there as well. Um, and basically, 
Bertie came in and put up another team sheet, and it was he was playing Pat Quinn, Donny McKinnon, um, and reserves. So we went on the pitch at half past ten in the morning, and it was a an hour, half hour each way practice game, and I'm thinking to myself, right, okay. It's going to be just tactics, free kicks, or you know how to position yourself at corners, who to mark, all this kind of thing. And uh, it was a boy called Ronnie Sheed uh, playing against me, and Ronnie played the ball too far, and I got it, and I got the ball, and stood in it, with my hands and my hips, because I thought that well, that's that's the uh, over. Me Bertie whistling like mad. I can't, I can't. I brought you because you could tackle. He said and run about. He said uh, you better start doing it. Right, so I'm looking, I say, okay, right, so the game starts again, and um, Brian Whitaker, who played left back, he puts me Pat Quinn up in the air, uh, <laughs> and he lets the wall at the side of the pitch, and I'm thinking, this is serious, so we started, you know, t- tackles are flying in, and then I get the ball at the back, and suddenly it opened, and I get through the midfield, and uh, next thing I see wee Bertie coming, he studs <laughs> up at me, try to do me. <laughs> and I'm saying, goodness, so I managed to evade him, played the ball into Jim Melrose, he scored, it's 1-0, right, so back to the halfway line, he better said to me, he says, aye, McKinnon, good job, you're fast, son, he says, but I'll still get you, I'll do you, <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'm we're playing a Premier League game in the afternoon, three o'clock kickoff, but that was every home game we had, that's what they did, Incredible. and you really had to, you know, fly in, uh, so... Just, just listen to the names you're, you're rhyming off there and, you know, you've got Ruffy, you've got Melrose, you've got Whittaker. What a bad team. Thistle had a brilliant team at that, that uh, juncture. They had, um, it was Ruff, McKinnon, Whittaker, um, Campbell, Jackie Campbell, Andy Anderson at the back. They had, um, you know, Jamie Doyle midfield, uh, Ian Gibson, um, Ian McDonald. Uh, Kenny Watson that used to play with Rangers played Ali Kohara uh, up front Colin McAdam yeah. uh, Morris Johnson uh, Doogie Sumner Sh- sorry, what a team we had who, who did most support at this time? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a Rangers support they told me anyway uh, so anyway so um, we had what a team we had and we were actually we were probably in the top four in the Premier League and there was one season, uh, there was a huge freeze, 1979-80, and we played Motherwell and gone top of the league. Uh, but part-time. The, part-time. But the freeze came in and we didn't play again for weeks and months. And we ended up sixth in the league. We, we, I think we, we didn't win a lot of games after that because we were training in school halls. We weren't fit because uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't find a place to train. Um, so it was a great team and Bertie Old was a great manager because what he did was very good tactically but what he did was he played mind games with you because uh, an example right so uh, he this remember we're training three times a week so we were either running through Postle Park and I remember um, the first time I ran through Postle Park way up um, Balmore Road and things like that and he said to me he says right you and Ruffy go. He said, Ruffy knows the route, right? So I'm saying, right. So he's at the front door at Firhill, blows his whistle, big Donnie McKinnon 
it's got stopwatch, go, right? And uh, we get to the top of Firhill Road, turn round, uh, I think it's Pan Muir Street, and uh, there's a taxi waiting <laughs> side of the road. And Ruffy says to me, right, come on, let's get in the taxi. I said, no, there's absolutely no chance that's going to happen, Ruffy. He said, no, he said, he said uh, you know, Bertie stands at the front door. I said, no, no chance. So he jumps in the taxi and he says, I'll get you at the end of um, Balmore Road, uh, or maybe just round for the pitch, he said, and uh, we'll run in together. So he gets the taxi. I think he goes for a, a fish supper or something like that. <laughs> and uh, he says, that... He says, that running's not for goalkeepers, Davey. Right, so I'm running right around the streets. Managed to get to them. I see the taxi in the distance about maybe 25 minutes later. And Ruffy gets out, starts sprinting. So he's about maybe 100 yards in front of me as we, we come into Firhill Road. And um, basically, I managed to clock back a bit to about 50, 50 yards. And then he barely does his stopwatch and he says to me, McKinnon, I thought you were fit. He said, but imagine letting Big Ruffy beat you. <laughs> I, said, I said, oh, you're, you're, you're right, Gaffer. I said, uh, Ruffy's faster than you think, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and then he said, right, on the track. So I had to go on the track and do uh, 12 laps sprinting. So that was the kind of things that happened. But it was just, it was outrageous. It was, but it was brilliant because um, the dressing room, everybody got on with each other. Uh, everybody liked each other and the, the elephant in the room was wee Bertie because he he did that deliberately he he uh, made sure that the players didn't like him uh, and it was always oh, wee Bertie this and wee Bertie that but he was playing a game because he used to smile we used to go on the Firhill pitch and there was a thing called um, uh, I forget the name of it but where it was you sprinted you were there was divisions round the pitch, halfway line, 18-yard box, behind the goals, corner flags, and there was two at each, each station. What you had to do was the first one sprint to the next station, jog round, then come back to your spot, jog two stations, back to your spot, jog three stations, and then eventually you were jog you were sprinting the whole pitch. And I remember first time I did it, I thought. It was a coffin, it was called. That's what it was called. And I remember the first time I did it, I thought, goodness sake. And then what happened was, just when we were doing the final one, the full sprint, he barely blew his whistle, said, ah, stop, stop, Ruffy. You're letting your teammates down back to the start again. And we went to do it again. And all I heard was expletives for all the players. And I knew then that they were they were one. It was like three musketeers, you know, one for all, no for one. And Bertie was the enemy. Uh, and he was playing that psychological thing. And it, 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 we actually, um, we restarted to realise that and we used to try and catch him out and things like that. But he was an incredible man, you know, uh, incredibly intelligent and you know, a great laugh to be around. Some of the stuff that he did, and I've written a lot about that, you know, anecdotal stuff. So how long did you do it, Thistron? I was there four years. Um, and again, I had a kind of, was a life-changing injury. I was um, I just played for the Scottish League uh, against Northern Ireland, uh, and believe it or not, despite the fact that I had Sandy Jardin, Danny McGrain, John Brownley, George Burley, Raymond Stewart, all playing right back, Jock Steen told me after that game, 
ring me a chance make me a Scotland debut and I went oh that's that's great I think it was just been nice to me to be honest but I came back and then it started to feel really quite ill no energy um, and then I just got tests and discovered a tuberculosis and it had gone into my kidney so I'm 24 years of age just have played for the Scottish League and supposed to be the next getting a, a chance with Scotland and uh, I get my right kidney removed I'm 24 uh, and again I was told my career was over and I thought no chance no chance I've no worked as hard as I've worked to get back so I, I had six months rehab and get back uh, and played for um, Partick Thistle in the Scottish Cup against Clyde and I, Bertie Alder was made captain and I came back and played and that was me I, I get back and um one of the things that I did during that rehab time was think about my game because I'd played at Arsenal and, you know, I, I, I was a far better player um, at that time than, than I had become because I'd lost a wee bit of focus. The game was dictating to me rather than me dictating to the game. So I said to myself, some has to change. So during that six months, I looked at my game and said, right, you need to change your game. You need to get back to what, what you were. So I, I came back into the uh, Partick Thistle first team uh, and played very, very well. And uh, Bertie Old went uh, to Hibs and Peter Cormack came in and Peter wanted a change. He wanted the old school out, if you know what I mean, the Bertie people out, which happens. And, you know, I respect that and understand that because uh, every manager wants to, to formulate a team, you know, that he brings in. Um, and... Uh, Basically said, oh, you can you can go. He says, if you can get a club. In those days, you were under contract. Even though if they didn't offer you a new contract, you still had to, you know, basically get transferred. So um, Everton came in for me, um, St Mirren, uh, and then Rangers. And uh, that got me my change of attitude uh, after realising my career could be over in my kidney, got me in my move to Rangers because John Gregg did say that to me, said to me, said, you know, he says, I watched you after your um, uh, kidney operation, he said, and, uh, you know, every time we played you, you were the top player, your enthusiasm, your drive and all that kind of thing. He says, and that's what made me sign you. And I thought, oh, goodness sake. So everything happens for a reason. <laughs> and it's how you, you can either say, oh, you know, life's thrown me another bummer here. Uh, you can do that or you can say, no, I'm going to change this and I'm going to do something. And that's what got me the, the, the Rangers move. So when you went to Rangers, was that 82? Yes. And you were been 26, 27? Just 25 going on to 26. And so what did the Rangers team look like before you arrived? What was the sort of just that start in 11? And who was the, who was the right back that you, you were going well, to make sure <laughs> It was... Um, one of the greatest players that ever played for Rangers and a guy I had an unbelievable respect for, Sandy Jardin. Uh, and, you know, John Gregg's written the foreword of my book and he doesn't do that for everyone, which I'm really honoured for him to write that. And what he's basically said was um, Sandy, and I never knew this at the time, Sandy was a Hearts supporter and Hearts, Alec McDonald was the, the player manager and Alec McDonald had asked Sandy to become his co-manager. Uh, and John Gregg reluctantly agreed for him to, to do that and, and freedom. Uh, and he said, I needed a right back and you stood out for me and he 
came in. So I came into the side, and it was a transition. Tommy McLean had left. Um, Tom Forsyth had left. Uh, a lot of the old school, Alec Miller was still about. Um, and I came in, and to be perfectly honest, as a footballer, the better quality that you play with, the better you become as a player. Because uh, John Gregg had a, uh, and Tommy McLean was a great coach as well. The two of them were brilliant. And um, they used to say, Jim Stewart was a goalkeeper, right? Jim, when you get it, you roll it out to the fullbacks. So he'd roll it out to me, I'd roll it out to Ali Dawson. And um, so I'd look up and I'd have Davy Cooper coming short, looking for it. I'd Bobby Russell wanting it just inside. Robert Pritz, who was an unbelievable Clever player. player. Jim Bett, yeah. um, looking along the back for Craig Patterson and John McClelland. If, if they were all marked up, I'd play it into the channel uh, for big Derek Johnson, supported by John McDonald. So it was, as, as a fullback, it was unbelievable to play in that team because everybody wanted the ball. And what my job was to, to play it in, I played it to Coop, I'd go and I'd overlap and get into a position where I could get into the, the final third and cross the ball into the box for big DJ. And that happened on many occasions. So for me, I was there's a, a, a saying, playing out your skin. I was playing out my skin. Uh, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved just the way that my career was back on track again. Um, and I think we went 17 games undefeated and we were you know, talked about as uh, the greatest Rangers team in a generation. Things were going great. We were top of the league. We went up to Pataudry. Uh Rangers hadn't beaten Aberdeen since the Premier League was formed in 1975. We went up and beat them 2-1. And to be perfectly honest, it could have been a lot more. Uh, I had the hand in two goals. First one, I won a corner. Um, Coop took it and I think Derek Johnson scored. The second one... Um, I get involved in the kind of magical things that happened with Bobby Russell and Davy Cooper. You know, unbelievable players. And and I saw them wide on the right-hand side and I thought, I'm going to join in here. So I managed to get the ball. Bobby Russell played at Coop. Coop reverse, as he always did. Bobby Russell played me in. And I knew, you know, with training where people were. And I, I played it to the back post. Robert... Fritz had come in, as he was told to do, headed the ball past Jim Lee. They won 2-1. Rangers fans were absolutely magnificent that day. They were at the beach end in those days, full beach end, and, you know, the support they gave us was just incredible. And that that game was brilliant, because I say we've gone 17, we were top of the league, um, and things were going really well. And I remember coming off the pitch, and uh, it was a... Left side, I see Alec Ferguson run towards me, shouting, you dirty, right? And then John Gregg basically giving him a kind of shoulder charge and I dived into the, the dressing room. What was Sir Alex upset with you about? Well, because um, Aberdeen at that time had a really good player uh, on the left, uh, Peter Weir, and I'd played against him a lot of times. And um, it always it always been a difficult game because he was a really, really good player. Um and but I realised that you could talk to Peter for the game, and he actually came on his sub after about maybe twenty minutes or something like that. They changed the team, and uh, I first said to him, I said, uh, I 
I'm on my game, Peter. I said, uh, you better beware. And I gave him a few tackles early on. Uh, and Peter was brave as a lion, but I knew that if you tackled him early on and started talking to him, he would lose his concentration and he would just get the ball and play it back. And that's what he did. Uh, so Alec, Sir Alec, as he's called now, was a wee bit angry because I'd uh, thwarted his threat of Peter Weir by a bit of psychology, but also a bit of hard play. You know, fair, fair play, but hard. Aye, you, you, had a, you had a personal battle to win, and that's what a lot well, of managers and coaches talk about. If you yeah, go and win your personal battles, and we win more than they do, um, it'll, give you, it'll give you a wee bit of an edge, and it could be the difference between winning and losing or drawing. So fair play to you. So, so that was that, but... You know, it all went pear-shaped uh, because we'd beaten Borussia Dortmund uh, in the UEFA Cup and then had uh, Cologne and uh, Schumacher and goals. And we'd beaten them 2-1 here at, uh, at Ibrox and um, went across to Germany, very confident. And the, the Germans were very unhappy about how we'd played them at uh, Ibrox and... Um, in the, the German newspapers, a big headline, McKinnon, uh, the Rangers fullback, would have kicked a rabbit <laughs> if it ran across the pitch. So we get to our hotel in Cologne, I'm rooming with Ali Dawson, and uh, there's a lump in the bed. And I'm saying to myself, what's the heck's that? Ali's saying, what's that? So I lift it and there's a dead rabbit <laughs> in the bed. So we quickly changed our rooms and going. But that game, uh, it was in there old stadium, I think there was about maybe 70,000 there, and I think there was about 15,000, 20,000 Rangers supporters, but we were expected to win because we were playing so well um, and before the game, they were practising volleys from the edge of the box, like Barsky that played from the winger, he was crossing the ball back to the and I'd say to Ali Dawson at the time better keep our eye on for that because don't let them get a cross in and uh, we're volleying balls in the top corner. First 20 minutes, they're 4-0 up. Four volleys into the top corner. Uh, and it was it was, it was, was just... And then the game settled down. Um, I gave away a penalty, which I think was outside the box. But So we, we could beat 5-0. And what we should have done was said, that's a one-off. Uh, but we didn't. We let it linger in our, our minds. And... Um, what happened was when I'd get the ball at the back, now I'd look up, everybody's back was turned because the confidence came out. And, and, you know, when I look back at it, I think, you know, psychologically the players should have taken ownership. And I think maybe, you know, the management should have said at that time, look, this is a one-off. But it was lingered, how can you get beat 5-0? And they were slaughtered in the papers, you know, disgraceful, this kind of thing. And it really affected the team. Uh, and we ended up, I think we ended up third in the league uh, when Dundee United won it. That, that was, I think my first season going to watch any Rangers games would have been about 79, 80. And although Rangers had won trebles and stuff in the past, but I had no memory of that. I was, I was only a, a kid, I would have been about four or five. So around about 8, 81 was when I really started going and I'd have been about nine, eight, yeah. nine year old. I was at the Dortmund game, I remember, um, oddly enough, we were sit, sitting near... The uh, Dortmund fans and this guy came down halfway through the first half with leopard skin trousers, a skin tight but wavy shirt. Rod Stewart was it? And the hair. <laughs> I like Rod Stewart. I thought Rod Stewart went to 
supporting the Dortmund. That was one of my earliest. We played Dukla Prague, I think, the year before. Uh-huh. And we get put out in away goals. And I remember Rangers winning. This must have been the second leg, and I was at that at home. Uh, and my dad having to explain to me on the way back to Linwood how Rangers weren't in Europe anymore. And I'm like, but we won. Uh, um, so that was sort of my early formative years as, as a fan. The, the Dortmund game was incredible because the Westfalen Stadium where Dortmund play, um, it was full of capacity. And that was the Ibrox was modeled in the Westfalen Stadium. Uh, and it was incredible. And, um, you know, my game was getting forward, but also defending. Defending first and foremost as a right back. Yeah, right. Uh, that's an awful idea these days. <laughs> but that's what that's what I was and so I defended first, but I knew when we get forward, I could get forward. John Gregg said to me, he said, I don't want you crossing the halfway line tonight. And that's what I did. So I just defended. But this upbringing I'd had at Arsenal, uh, about learning the game, it, defending was easy for me. It was all about positioning, about communication. Uh, so I, I actually loved defending. So I remember that night, you know, we were throwing their bodies in the line and all that kind of thing. Drew nil nil because we, we weren't up the park to score uh, and came back and uh, beat them 2 0 at Ibrox. And, um, you know, people talk about the European nights at, at uh, Ibrox. That was incredible. I mean, the experience of playing in that uh, game in front of the fans. Uh, all the fans were behind us. Uh, they cheered to start to finish. Um, the players, and what I think is, you know, getting into executive, chief executive at clubs, what the what the clubs have to do is align every aspect of their, their operation, from the boardroom to the dressing room, to the players, to the football management, to the staff and to the fans. Because if you don't align everything, you know, if the fans feel that they're disenfranchised in any way, it doesn't work because poor performances will be rightly analysed. Uh, but the fans, you know, if they're aligned with, with the, the vision within a club, and that's 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 what you have to do. So it's all aligned. Uh, clear objectives are set out. Clear strategies are set out, uh, and which what every component, you know, board, players, staff, fans can make to that, that plan, it all works. On that night against Dortmund, it was clearly aligned. Everything was there. The, the, everybody, the club at that time was really aligned. Uh, the fans were just magnificent uh, and uh, cheered us off the park. Uh, it was a great performance and, you know, uh, the great players played the Coopers this world. Um but it, again, it went PSU against Cologne. And do, do you think that that single 90 minutes of football caused that whole thing, the, the wheels to start coming off? Is that against, as simple as that? Against Cologne, yeah, absolutely. Because um, we played Cologne at Ibrox and it was just after the, the World Cup and Schumacher had halved Battiston of France and two and stayed on the park. Um, and... As you remember, Ibrox, uh, in those days, there was a warm-up area under the main stand. Davey, I used to spend many, many an hour <laughs> standing. I'd, uh, we were in section J, which is uh, about uh, one to the right yeah. of the director's box. And that was the only section, when I started going to uh, Rangers games, that had any season tickets. Season uh, tickets, were, that was that. There was a few hundred of us. And it was before they bricked it all in. I used uh, to come up early. Uh, I used to play my game for London Rangers in the morning and get my daddy to take me soon as. 
and just stood you and John McClelland and all these guys. And I was a sort of budding centre half, and I was playing for the school. I would play a couple of years up, they would stick me right back. So you yep. and McClelland and that would be the ones I'd watch. And I've got a distinct memory of the three balls that were hanging, slightly different heights. That was medicine balls. You just like, oh, bang, bang. And would, is that what they were actually? Well, they did that training, medicine balls, which was a bit, a bit surreal. But um, on that, that Cologne game specifically, um, Schumacher had just come back right for the World Cup and he was just, he was a crazy guy. And uh, I remember we were running and warming up and things like that. And um, he had a ball and he was putting it off the wall and catching it. Right, So all the players were keeping away from him. Uh, and I remember running, running, and then turning just about maybe five yards um, before I got to him. And uh, as I ran to him, he turned, whacked the ball off my face. And, you know, he was a giant. I thought, you're not getting away with this. So him and I were rolling about in the, the red blaze there before the game starts. Uh, and big Peter McCloy came along and uh, pulled us apart. Uh, and I knew a bit of German because um, Arsenal had played a lot of tournaments in, in Germany, so I picked up a lot of German, particularly how to swear. So I was swearing at him in German, and he was raging. He was trying to punish me. Oh, it was just it was outrageous. Uh, and then the game started, and we did a thing. I had a great understanding with Robert Pritz, and I knew if he got the ball in, in midfield, I would make a run forward. And he would play the ball into me and then I could cut it back or get it into big Derek Johnson or John McDonald. So after about five minutes, he's got the ball in midfield and I see him and he doesn't have to say and it's telepathic. So I start running and he, he overcooks it and it's running into the cologne box and I see Schumacher leaving his line and he's running and I'm thinking, yeah, big, I'm not going to bottle it here. You're getting it. So the two is... It's almost like a kung fu kick. So he he kicks me in the chest and I kick him in the chest. And we're down in the penalty box and their players have come up and, you know, again, swearing in German, which I understood. And I was swearing back at them. And uh, the referee comes up and he's from Sweden, right? And he's so laid back, you'd never believe. And he said, uh, pulls his apart and says, gentlemen, if you don't start to play nice, I will send you off. And that was it. Not even a yellow. <laughs> no, even a yellow. And I thought, good on you, you know. And then in the, the second half, uh, a ball came out to me 25 yards out. It's on YouTube. And uh, I got my head over it and I hammered it into the top uh, corner. So it's going into the, the top corner. And the big man throws himself and turns it around the post. And I thought... You might have let that get in, big man, you know. Because it'd have been a, it'd have been a screamer a goal, to be oh, honest. You'll probably find those highlights of that tackle, you and the goalkeeper, get shown in France quite a bit that time as well. <laughs> well, it uh, certainly was uh, quite an experience, and uh, but a good one. But then, as I say, we, we beat them when we thought, right, 2-1, I think we, we won, and we'd every confidence to go in there and probably getting a draw or something like that and, and progressing, but we never, we never. And that's, that changed complexity of things and sometimes that does things to a club uh, and a team the good teams if they you know uh, are beaten they use it psychologically they turn it in its head 
of that's a one-off. You'll never experience that in the season. Let's get back in track. But we never did that, you know, and that wasn't good. And then, ironically, I get injured because um, right back was my position and uh, I get injured up at um, Tawdry again uh, in January and I was out for six weeks with a, an ankle in- injury. Ali Dawson came in and played right back and was just magnificent. He was a really good friend of mine, Ali. It's so sad that he's gone. Uh, and I knew then that the way Ali was performing, I had to play in another position. So I ended up playing uh, left back, occasionally right back, centre half, uh, right midfield, centre midfield. And I got the tag. John Greg left from Big Jock came. He said, uh, uh, McKinnon's a great utility man because I can play him anywhere. And once you get that utility oh, man tag, you're finished. That's that. That's <laughs> but, but surprisingly for me, you know, I've done the stats. Uh, Alistair Aird, uh, who uh, writes some great Rangers books, he did the editing of my book. And Alistair came up with the stats and I, I played 177 times for Rangers. So I'm proud of that. Hi guys, I'd just like to take a, a minute to talk to you about NordVPN, which is a company that I use their services. I use it majority of the time when I'm travelling abroad, and I want to uh, keep up to date with the programmes I'm watching at the time, or more importantly to me, um, the sports that I want to watch when I'm abroad. So it doesn't matter where I am in the world, I can still watch the channels and the games and the sports that I want to. It also gives me security and some privacy that I'm looking for when I'm browsing the internet. They've got an exclusive huge discount available to viewers of the podcast and they'll give you an additional four months free on top of whichever package you go on if you use our, our code. To get that, plus a 30-day no-quibble uh, money-back guarantee, all you need to do is log on to nordvpn.com backslash Craig, C-R-A-I-G, and that'll get you the exclusive discount plus the four months free on top of whichever package you go for. So go and give them a look, guys, and certainly I've had no problem using them in the times I'm travelling abroad when I mostly use them. Thank you very much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.